Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to this end-of-year edition of Diffusion Science Radio. Sit back and listen as we inject amazing and bizarre science directly into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe, and on this edition, we'll feature a look back on 2012 on Diffusion Science Radio, tilting at windmills, and natural selection. But first up, here's the news. Viral heartbeats. Normally we're born with thousands of pacemaker cells growing in our hearts, making our heart pump blood with every beat. When the electrical signals these cells generate goes wrong, it can kill you. When the pacemaker cells go wrong, people have been conventionally treated by having a battery-powered electronic pacemaker implanted near their heart to keep it beating the right way. Researchers at the Cedars-Sinai Heart Institute have managed to make new pacemaker cells instead, using a virus. Human pacemaker heart cells have an active gene TBX18 that differentiates them from regular heart cells. The researchers engineered TBX18 into a virus. When the virus was injected into a region of the hearts of seven guinea pigs, five later had heartbeats which originated from the new pacemaker. The biological pacemaker doesn't need to have its batteries replaced and doesn't require special security at the airport. This is early work and it will be many years before they're ready to start trying this on humans, although it's worth emphasising that they deliberately used the human pacemaker gene on the guinea pigs. The paper, Direct Conversion of Quiescent Cardiomyocytes to Pacemaker Cells by Expression of TBX18, was published in the journal Nature Technology in September 2012. The BBC reports that cosmetic products using bee venom as an ingredient are a new hot seller in the cosmetics market. Bee venom is said to tighten the skin and make wrinkles and other signs of ageing appear less pronounced than before. Unlike Botox, bee venom does not need to be injected and doesn't paralyse your face muscles. It can be absorbed through the skin naturally as an ingredient of a cosmetic skin cream. And the kicker, a special electrified device that causes bees to sting a synthetic membrane and release their venom can harvest about one gram of bee venom per 20 beehives. The bees don't lose their stings and they aren't harmed by the process. That one gram of bee venom is worth $350. This makes bee venom seven times more valuable than gold. Gold is worth only about $50 per gram. It puts the bee venom on par with the price of ink for inkjet printers. Thank you. 
listening to Diffusion Science Radio, Diffusion at 2SCR.com, brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network, into Sydney on 2SER, and over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. This may all be happening right now. When researching cows' ability to go up and downstairs, ears on the backs of mice might sound like mad science, but it's actually a they really good They bashed them together really, really hard, and all these electrons came out, and that's radio. Discovery. And next, please excuse the quality. This was recorded in 20 kilobits per second off the radio stream in 2003. From 2003, back when Diffusion used to be the Discovery Show, we bring you Episode 1 of Natural Selection, a radio play by Lachlan Watmore of the life, journey and discoveries of the greatest biologist of the modern age, Charles Darwin. And the evening and the morning were the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth the living creature after his kind, cattle and creeping thing, and beast of the earth after his kind. And it was so. And God made the beast of the earth after his kind, and cattle after their kind, and everything that creepeth upon the earth after his kind. And God saw that it was good. And God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And the evening and the morning were the sixth day. My name is Charles Darwin. I was going to be a parson, but natural history got in the way. Ever since I was a small boy, Every creeping, crawling, slithering, walking, flying, swimming, and stationary beast held me in thrall. I would marvel at the huge variety of species found within five minutes' walk of my father's house. I was born in 1809, and my childhood was idyllic. My father was a successful country doctor who had built a practice in Shrewsbury and had done very well, well enough for him to send me first to medical school in Edinburgh. Then, after my horror at the sight of blood had caused me to flee the first operation I witnessed, thereby crushing any hope of following in his footsteps, to Christ's College, Cambridge, to study for my Bachelor of Arts. It was thus intended that I become a country parson, which was an acceptable and well-regarded profession for a young man of my social class. Despite my lack of any great religious piety, it was not thought unremarkable that I should do so. I was not distressed. My religious faith, while not possessing the devotion of saints or martyrs, was sufficient to become a parson without any hypocrisy, and the countryside of my parish would surely reward me with new specimens, particularly beetles, of which I had a special fascination. I must confess my student days were profligate and boisterous. I much preferred hunting and shooting, and the bacchanalian charms of the college glutton club, rather than devotion to my study. The classics, Greek and Latin, I loathed for their tediousness. Mathematics I could barely understand. However, my time at Cambridge did give me a rudimentary knowledge of the basics of science. 
in particular geology, zoology and botany. I was encouraged by one of my teachers, Professor John Stevens Henslow, who I would accompany on long walks through the countryside and boating trips along the Cam River. He was not just a professor of botany, but also a clergyman himself, and saw no reason why I could not continue to enjoy collecting and my beloved sports after settling into my future vicarage. And then, one day in 1831, everything changed forever. His Majesty's ship Beagle, under the command of Captain Robert Fitzroy, was to sail to southern climes and carry out two scientific tasks. One was the completion of the charting of the South American coast, which up until then had been rather sloppy. The other was a more accurate fixing of longitude by carrying out a chain of chronological reckonings around the world. The ship was in need of a naturalist, and my name had been put forward by Henslow with his recommendation. I had never thought myself more than an amateur naturalist, an enthusiastic one to be sure, but certainly not a professional. I was destined to be a country parson, with natural history taking close but definite second place to theology and the salvation of souls. My father was quite against the idea, but did not absolutely forbid me from going, stating that if you can find any man of common sense who advises you to go, I will give my consent. I found such a man in my uncle, Josiah Wedgwood, who had made his fortune in the pottery industry. Uncle Joss, as I called him, won my father over to the cause of my adventure on the Beagle, and on the 5th of September, 1831, I went to London for the interview with Captain Fitzroy. In retrospect, it's rather remarkable that Fitzroy and I liked each other almost from the start. My family were Whigs and Liberals, his aristocrats and Tories. He didn't think much of me at first, especially my nose which he considered not the nose of a man who could endure the hardships of a voyage around the world. However, my nose appears to have won him over, which was a good thing, because he made it clear that if I am to share a cabin with a man for up to five years, let him be a man for whom I have some affection. The idea of being closeted with a dolt or blasphemer is repugnant to me. For my own part, I found Fitzroy enthralling. He was a man of courage, enthusiasm and fairness, who treated me kindly while not withholding frankness. He urged me not to make a hasty decision, that long periods at sea held their own terrors, and to consider the many dangers that uncharted parts of the world might hold. I felt honoured and privileged to have even met him, and he spoke about the deprivations of sea life with a view to my not being unpleasantly surprised by something he might have missed. Shall you bear being told that I want the cabin to myself when I want to be alone? If we trust each other this way, I hope we shall suit. If not, probably we should wish each other at the devil. Now, sir, some advice for you. Your mess bill should not amount to more than £30 a year, and I would urge you to accompany me to Regent Street tomorrow and join me in purchasing some firearms. We shall land in many places where a man is not safe without a brace of pistols, preferably accompanied by a good quality rifle. Thus my preparations for the voyage would occupy me until the day of our departure. After buying pistols and a good quality rifle, seeing that my onboard library was well but not largely stocked, and coaching up from London to Shrewsbury to bid farewell to my family, I joined HMS Beagle on the 24th of October.
after two more months of preparation, we finally sailed on the 27th of December, 1831. The Beagle was not a large ship. In fact, she was only 90 feet long, a 10-gun brig at 242 tons displacement. At first sight of her, I wrote to Henslow, complaining that the absolute want of room was an evil that nothing could surmount. I myself shared Fitzroy's cabin with him, and, thanks to our mission of a more accurate reckoning of longitude, no less than 22 chronometers, to keep track of time in Greenwich. My sleeping space was so confined that I was forced to remove a drawer from a locker to accommodate my feet. Small though the Beagle was, she was in excellent condition, her last overhaul in the Plymouth dry dock having seen her practically rebuilt, with mahogany replacing many structures built of lesser quality woods. Her entire complement numbered 74 souls. Along with the captain and myself, there was the first lieutenant, John Wickham, the second lieutenant, James Sullivan, Fitzroy's surveying assistant, John Lord Stokes, the surgeon, Robert McCormick, his assistant, Benjamin Bino, the purser, George Rowlett, the only midshipman, Philip King, the ship's artist, Augustus Earl, plus the ship's master, his two mates, the bosun, the carpenter, eight marines, 34 seamen, eight clerks, six boys, one missionary, and three special passengers, of whom I shall now speak. On the previous voyage of the Beagle, Fitzroy had visited Tierra del Fuego, a windswept, cold island at the tip of South America near Cape Horn. There he had picked up, some might say purchased, three natives, two young men and a young girl, and had brought them back to England with him to be educated and Christianized at his own expense. He had also given them English names, albeit rather unusual ones. The two young men were called York Minster and Jemmy Buttons, the latter apparently having been purchased for a handful of the same. Fitzroy had bestowed the most whimsical name on the young girl, Fawagia Basket. All three had been presented to the King and Queen. Her Gracious Majesty had put one of her bonnets on little Fawagia's head and given her a purse of money to buy clothes. They had learnt enough English to be understood in day-to-day -day matters, had been clothed in European attire, and were now to be returned to their homeland to spread Christianity and civilization. The young missionary, Richard Matthews, would return with them. Let me pause here to reflect more on Fitzroy. He was a man of steadfast and devout Christian faith, and nothing could divert him from this spiritual course. He had thought nothing of paying for the passage education and religious upbringing of the three Fuegians out of his own pocket, for he considered it most Christian to evangelize and civilize peoples of the world who had not had the good fortune of hearing the gospel of Christ. He also believed that our voyage would not only enable him to spread the word, but also enable me to substantiate the Bible. Philosopher, as a naturalist, you have a rare opportunity on this voyage. Imagine what greater service you can perform to the glory of God than to find physical evidence of the flood and possibly the appearance of the first living things on earth which God had created. My captain, what a feather in my cap upon becoming a parson. I can imagine reading the book of Genesis to my flock with my personal experience, as well as my faith, as evidence of this great truth. However, as we shall see, something altogether different happened. 
You can hear episode 2, 3 and 4 in future episodes of Diffusion. Charles Willock looks at the issue of breadth of attention and wind turbine noise and movement. Alternative sources of energy each have upsides and downsides. Today we look a little closer at wind power from the perspective of human perception and attention. The issue for wind farms arises from the fact that, for detecting danger, human beings are tuned to be alert to changes. Ability to pick up small changes, even tiny changes in the environment, may, in the past, have meant the difference between survival and elimination. To some extent, we retain that detection ability. Humans are sensitive to variations in both sound and vision. Because there is a finite limit to mental resources which can be allocated to processing such information, repetitive images and constant sounds tend to be tuned out through the process of habituation. Habituation refers to the decreased automatic reaction to a repeated stimulus. For example, when walking into a room containing a pendulum clock, one might notice the pendulum moving. Movement! Aha! Something interesting, says the eyes. But fairly quickly, one chooses to ignore the signals as the process becomes movement. Oh that, it's only the pendulum. Nothing interesting there. Move on. The habituation effect also applies to sound. And the auditory and visual senses are difficult to turn off. Perhaps not surprisingly, different people have quite different sensitivity to stimulus. Some people jump when touched on the shoulder from behind, others don't. Different people have different levels of habituation for sound and visual change. Some can completely ignore repetitive sound, while others are driven to distraction. Some find that they can tune out blinking advertisements on web pages. Others find them really, really irritating and ongoingly distracting. One aspect of variation of sensitivity and habituation relies on what is called breadth of attention. One might have a wide breadth of attention or a narrow one. People with narrow breadth of attention tend to be able to focus uninterrupted on what they are doing. That's a good thing. Those with a wide breadth of attention tend to be more easily interrupted. The importance of attentional response differs too in the extent to which each individual feels stressed or alarmed, and the overall level of distraction and distress they feel. Some of those sensitivities are cultural. Some arise naturally. The impact of those sensitivities also depends on the context in which those distractions take place. For land-based wind farms to be cost-effective and to produce worthwhile quantities of electricity, turbines need to be large and to be positioned at places of good, consistent winds. Desirable locations for electricity production are in mountain passes, along ridgelines, on coastal cliffs or plains, or on hills rising from those plains. To reduce transmission losses, wind farms should be placed close to where the electricity will be used. Unfortunately for land-based locations, places of higher wind speed tend to overlap with photogenic localities. The way people respond to wind turbines also differs. Some appreciate the visual form. They admire the elegant sweeping curves of turbine blades. Many appreciate the ongoing reassurance that power for our modern society is being generated from a low pollution energy source. Others, however, find wind turbines visually irritating. 
Their attention is drawn away from the scenery they want to see. Not everyone wants their still photographs of the environment to contain rows of wind turbines in the mountain passes or along the ridges. Not everyone wants their videos to contain the distraction of waving blades of turbines in the background. And not everyone wants to habituate to moving objects. They feel distracted by them and can find that distressing. Wind farms can also be ocean-based. Placing them some distance offshore reduces visual and acoustic impact. However, construction costs of ocean-based wind farms can be high, in part due to the need to provide deep footings and the difficulties of construction. Maintenance costs are also higher because of the tougher marine environment. Noise distraction is an important issue. While noise can be habituated to some extent, and modern turbines are designed to adjust their blades to improve efficiency at different wind speeds, thereby reducing overall noise, they still produce different noise levels and different noise profiles at different wind speeds and during wind gusts. Those same gust-induced noise variations attract attention. Gustiness increases with wind speed. Thus the sound from wind turbines keeps changing as the wind changes, which makes it really distracting for some people who have a wide breadth of attention and who can't habituate to changing noises. It keeps drawing their attention away from what they want to focus on, and it distresses them. Cities and towns often grow in places of convenience and scenic beauty. Those include topologically interesting features such as mouths of rivers, in majestic mountain valleys and the like. Wind farms, however, tend to be located in country areas quite often some distance from the cities. Critics argue that if wind turbines really are as elegant and as quiet as the proponents make out, why not locate them within those towns or major cities? And if turbines really were as aesthetic as proponents suggest, maybe turbines could be sited on harbours and along coastlines as an added tourist attraction. Locating wind farms in towns and cities would have a real benefit of having very short distances to places of high demand, leading to minimal energy losses and lowered cost. A wind turbine tower has a relatively small footprint, so maybe they could be located comfortably in small local parks, or positioned on the top of tall buildings within a city, although that might indeed create difficulties for helicopter movements. So far, such siting proposals have received strong opposition. If wind farms are not that attractive in cities, why, critics argue, should the city reap all the benefits while the country put up with the downside? If there are drawbacks with respect to siting, then it would seem fair that those who benefit most should also bear most of the cost. Why should a rural location be the acoustic and visual dumping ground for city dwellers? Then again, maybe it is a matter of demanding that those with visual and auditory sensitivity, a wide breadth of attention, be trained to habituate better. But there are also problems with that. Sensitivity to sound and motion, a wide breadth of attention, allows just those people to be much more sensitive to subtle changes in society. Not unexpectedly, a wide breadth of attention is also strongly correlated with creativity. Surely, having creativity and an early warning system are just those attributes to be cultivated by a society.
For all of the above reasons, and in spite of the additional cost, it seems increasingly likely that wind farms will be located over water at some distance from the shore. Good wind, out of sight, out of earshot, and out of mind. Thanks, Charles. Perhaps this goes some way to explaining why some people have issues with wind farms. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know, and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the Earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick. Everything from a molecule to a living organism. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Knowledge of his physical world, its past, its present, and its future. And in your moments of relaxation, now and in the years to come, you will find the study of science leading you into fascinating pursuits. Photography. Collecting. Why study science? Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life. And that's all from us this time on Diffusion. If you'd like to contribute to the show, we need more contributors on Diffusion. Send email to diffusion at 2SCR.com. That's diffusion at 2SCR.com. And tell us your thought, feelings and stories. Subscribe to our podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. Contributing to the program were Dominic Cochran, Tim Baines, Adam Mark, Charles Willock, and Lachlan Watmore. I produce Diffusion in the studios of 2SCR in Sydney, and Diffusion is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Looking at the URL, the first thing that sticks out is the colon. And how about a slashing or cutting sound for the slashes? To complete the experience, we might throw in the HTTP and maybe some kind of download sound. www.diffusionradio.com Lachlan Watmore on guitar. Ha, ha, ha,